This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Laura Flanders, TED Talk from Sean Acor, Decode DC, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, and an activism segment from The Next System Project. Uh, I called about a year and a half ago, and I discussed culture. Uh, and I was listening to Philip Mikowski, uh, and you sort of touched upon how the profit motive and money had sort of overtaken all other values in the society, which is sort of what we were talking about uh, a year and a half ago. I remember that conversation. Was that really a year and a half ago? I know. It seems like yesterday, but I think it was, yeah, probably uh, summer... Yeah, last summer at some point. Okay. Um, so anyway, I wanted to follow up, which is to say, uh, I, I read some of the comments after you had posted uh, that conversation on YouTube, and uh, and a lot of them were quite defensive. Um, like, who are you to say, you know, what our culture should be, and and uh, are you really, you know, uh, demeaning or? Uh, denigrating, you know, everybody and our culture? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, yes. I, I think that we now have a culture that is unsustainable. And I think that for a variety of reasons, the left can no longer deal with the issue of culture. Uh, and But by not addressing culture, what it really represents is sort of an abdication or an abnegation of our responsibility to change, which seems very much like a rightist kind of other blame, except that in this case, we're always demanding that corporations change or that our, you know, politicians change. And once again, there's absolutely so little discussion on the left that this culture and the way that we live our lives is not, is not sustainable. It's not good. It's not conducive to progressive causes and to progressive ideals. It's a rightist culture that's um, a very corporate culture. It's about technophilia. It's about overconsumption, excess, selfishness, more, new, better, me, me, me. And uh, I think until you address those values, which is to say the norms and the mores and, and the, uh, the culture, I, I really see no possibility that we're going to be able to shape a future that uh, we'll want to see. You know, I, I mean, I think I, and, and, and just to remind people, it was uh, Professor Philip Murawski, and it w- he had a book, I, the, the title escapes me, but it was on basically the intellectual history of, of neoliberalism. And, right. um, and, but I, and, and I agree, I mean, I think that you and I, uh, if I recall that conversation, you know, sort of agreed um, on the critique of culture. I'm not so clear. I'm not so convinced that um, that the that the that it follows, or or that the, the the political change, the societal change, follows from a. From the cultural change, it's possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, at one point something changed, and you know, and, and we haven't had this conversation 
um, very much recently. Uh, certainly, we had a lot more uh, a, a couple of years ago, and it's one you know that I, I keep trying to veer back to. And uh, it's hard to find people writing about this to a certain extent. But um, the question is, is like you know, at one point, um, at one point, money became such an ascendant value that it trumped. All of I mean, because there was a counterculture, right? And there was a time, uh, and, and for much of the 20th century, where you could have value in a community as uh, as a producer of things, or as an organizer, or um, without money being a um, Money being a marker of the quality of what you've produced, uh, and you could be applauded not necessarily in spite of the fact that you're not making money, although that was the case. Um, but um, you know, so in other words, you could have actual independent film and be held in high esteem, even if there was no commercial successfulness of those films. And right. it is um, not so much the case in our society a- anymore and i mean you know uh, naomi klein's book i think you know talks about the unsustainability of our our system more broadly speaking uh in light of climate change and and i think what you're talking about is uh th- this culture that that places a material Wealth and the and the pursuit of it at as the as the highest ascendant value, even in areas that have traditionally not been about that art and music and uh, I, I mean it's uh, I don't know if one would follow the other. In other words, my sense is that the best, like you know, just speaking from my limited experience, um, when my pursuits were a little bit more artistic, the best material and the best like product the best comedy i ever you know uh, w- was a part of it was generally where there was the least amount of money involved <laughs> where that 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 where you know in those stages of uh, the work that i was doing and with other people was generally speaking when um there was really no you know Thinking about your career really was almost silly, on some level. Um, where it was generally not when the best silly, work was done. Not only silly, but there was actually, you know, either what needs to happen is you, or both, you glorify less, which is, you know, I think probably the major task of the left at this point in history is to figure out how to make less cool. Uh, it sounds really superficial and silly. But it's an incredibly important issue that very few people are, are thinking about at a time that the planet is, you know, telling us that it's ready to collapse. Uh, and but if you think about it, I'd like to think that it was all about Reagan and then and certainly uh, privatization of everything helped to uh, breed this sort of culture. Yeah. But even in the in the 90s, if I think about Kurt Cobain and his struggles about not wanting to sell out, right. And I think about early rappers, YZ and. And others, you know, telling uh, young black youth, don't sell out, don't sell out. That was 1992-ish. Right. And then, uh, you know, and then you had Biggie and you had Puffy, and then that was, you know, the corporate culture. Uh, and that's how, you know, basically hip-hop became corporatized and, and consumerized. 
but it's it's interesting that it wasn't that long ago that you still had these sorts of right. Uh, I mean, I remember. I, I, frankly, I remember the feeling. You know, going to see uh, Nirvana and uh, maybe it was '91 or something during the Bleach tour, and people were getting a oh. little bit upset that like they were getting big, and um, and there was some of that like. I, and maybe that dynamic exists today. I don't know. I, I because I'm not, but I don't. I don't get the sense that it is. I mean, now like sort of. Uh, but, but, all right, here's just one, one thing to add into that. And then, um, uh, you know, w- we should continue to have this conversation because I think it's a good one. And again, if anybody knows any writing, uh, uh, around this, uh, books, even if they're a little bit, uh, uh dated, uh, send them to me at majorityreporters at gmail.com because I would love to get into this stuff. But, you know, I noticed a piece today talking about how millennials, people born, I guess, uh, 1985 to 2000, roughly, are using cars less. And um, there's no, no clear data as to why that's the case. It may have to do with just like they never were around when gas was was cheap. Uh, or they are moving, they're tending to live in cities more, or that, uh, they don't perceive cars as the status symbols that other generations have. Um, they value their, their computer and their phones more than their cars, which, you know, theoretically has to do with connectivity. I mean, it's a, it could be a different value. Um, they, they connect with people online more. Nobody's quite sure why. But that's an example of a culture changing. And um, it one also having sort of, you know, positive effects, I, in my estimation. Uh, but the question is, can you extrapolate that and build on that? Or is that a function of, or has it gone the opposite direction? In other words, that's a function of it being expensive to own a car. And you can live a better life now as a younger person in a city, perhaps, because you can get roommates and it's not and you're still connected to people and there's more things for you to do on a low cost as opposed to living out in the suburbs. I don't know. But you see, my point there is that if it was the cost of gas and simply uh, the lack of money that people have to buy a nice car, so they're just not going to engage in cars as a status symbol, then the argument would be that broader um, policy decisions can affect the culture as opposed to the culture saying, we don't like cars anymore, and then just them not buying cars. You see what I'm saying? Right. No, I, I hope I hope that is the case, and I have seen something along to that effect, that, that the millennials are driving more, but I still see, unfortunately, Less. very much the same kind of consumerism uh, generally, but uh, and I, I still see, unfortunately, status symbols, especially kind of a, a compensatory consumerism as someone who's been to ghettos of various races and, and creeds, uh, and uh, and it doesn't matter if you're in Paraguay and the countryside where everybody's status symbol is a motorbike, or in Kansas where I was, where it's incredibly poor. And everybody has a $20,000 house and an $80,000 souped-up Dodge Ram, uh, or whether it's uptown in Harlem where, you know, you see everybody wearing tags on their, you know, hats or shoes to show that these are, you know, brand new and were just bought. And so I still see a lot of that, unfortunately, and it's not anything to do with 
a specific race or anything like that, but I still see, unfortunately, that, uh, as Leonard Cohen once said, the, uh, the rich have got their channels in the bedrooms of the poor, and I think that with TV, you still have, you know, rich people uh, in corporations sort of deciding the culture, yep. and unfortunately it's being fed into uh, communities that, uh, and there's no pushback anymore. So, Great call. But it's an interesting... Interesting conversation. Thanks, Sam, and I'll keep thinking on it. All right. Appreciate the call. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation, because it gives me sweet inspiration, and to tell you I Never felt this way before I know there is some way today. A new book just out on the Gilded Age calls ours an age of acquiescence. We've become a nation of acceptors, its author argues, willing to tolerate corporate crime and public poverty as inevitable outcomes of a system that's just rigged. The current public debate, author Stephen Fraser suggests, reflects a resignation that market capitalism is bedrock, unchangeable, simply the way things are. A century after the Gilded Age and the rise of corporate power, we've become wusses by comparison. Back then, wealth was just as condensed. The richest 1% owned over half of it all, while the bottom 44 shared just 1.1%. Theirs was an age of sit-down strikes and rebellions, though. Troops, not just cops, routinely hit the streets. What happened? As followers of our program know, at the Laura Flanders Show, we don't believe there's so much resignation. There's more rising going on out there than our money media show. Still, there's truth in Fraser's case that 19th century unrest was fueled in part by a different frame of reference. To 19th century factory workers, the age of alienation was new. Descendants of subsistence farmers and self-employed craftsmen, many of them remembered, as we do not, an alternative, and they chafed at lugging in and lugging out. Wage slavery, they called it. When I asked a class of college students what they understood that term to mean, a room of blank faces stared back at me not long ago. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin said upon receiving a National Book Award last fall. But then again, she said, so did the divine right of kings. In hard times, Le Guin said, we just may need fiction. Writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality, she said. Which is why there's so much to celebrate in the publication of a new book, Octavia's Brood, an anthology of visionary science fiction written by social justice organizers and activists. Can we rely on memory to imagine alternatives? Not in the way the 19th century rabble could. But in our time, we just may have radical science fiction, as the editors put it, to help us decolonize our brains.
When I was seven years old and my sister was just five years old, we were playing on top of a bunk bed. I was two years older than my sister at the time. I mean, I'm two years older than her now, but at the, <laughs> at the time that meant she had to do everything that I wanted to do, and I wanted to play war. So we were up on top of our bunk beds, and on one side of the bunk bed I had put out all my G.I. Joe soldiers and weaponry, and on the other side were all my sisters, my lows and ponies, and ready for a cavalry charge. There are differing accounts of what actually happened that afternoon, but since my sister is not here with us today, um, let me tell you the true story. <laughs> Which is my sister is a little bit on the clumsy side. And somehow, without any help or push from her older brother at all, suddenly Amy disappeared off of the top of the bunk bed and landed with this crash on the floor. And I nervously peered over the side of the bed to see what had befallen my fallen sister and saw that she had landed painfully on her hands and knees on all fours on the ground. I was nervous because my parents had charged me with making sure that my sister and I played as safely and as quietly as possible. And seeing as how I had accidentally broken Amy's arm just one week before... Heroically pushing her out of the way of an oncoming imaginary sniper bullet. For which I have yet to be thanked. I was trying as hard as I could. She didn't even see it coming. I was trying as hard as I could to be on my best behavior. And I saw my sister's faces wail of pain and suffering and surprise. Threatening to erupt from her mouth and threatening to wake my parents from the long winter's nap for which they had settled. So I did the only thing my little frantic seven-year-old brain could think to do to avert this tragedy. If you have children, you've seen this hundreds of times before. I said, Amy, Amy, wait, don't cry, don't cry. Did you see how you landed? No human lands on all fours like that. Amy, I think this means you're a unicorn. Now that was cheating because there's nothing in the world my sister would want more than not to be Amy the hurt five-year-old little sister, but Amy the special unicorn. Of course, this was an option that was open to her brain at no point in the past. And you could see on my poor, manipulated sister's face conflict. As her little brain attempted to devote resources to feeling the pain and suffering surprise she just experienced, or contemplating her newfound identity as a unicorn. And the latter one out. Instead of crying, instead of ceasing our play, instead of waking my parents with all the negative consequences that would have ensued for me, Instead, a smile spread across her face, and she scrambled right back up onto the bunk bed with all the grace of a baby unicorn. <laughs> with one broken leg. Well, we stumbled across. At this tender age, which is five and seven, we had no idea at the time was something that was going to be at the vanguard of a scientific revolution occurring two decades later in the way that we look at the human brain. What we had stumbled across is something called positive psychology, which is the reason that I'm here today and the reason that I wake up every morning. When I first started talking about this research outside of academia, out with companies and schools, the very first thing they said to never do is to start your talk with a graph. The very first thing I wanted to do is start my talk with a graph. This graph looks boring, but this graph is the reason that I get excited and wake up every morning. Morning. And this graph doesn't even mean anything. It's fake data. What we found is... <laughs> if I got this data back sitting you here in the room, I would be thrilled because there's very clearly a trend that's going on there and that means that I can get published, which is all that really matters. <laughs> the fact that there's one weird red dot that's up above the curve, there's one weird in the room, you know who you are. I saw you earlier. <laughs> that's no problem. That's no problem, as most of you know, because... I can just delete that dot. I can delete that dot because that's clearly a measurement error. And we know that's a measurement error because it's messing up my data. So one of the very first things that we teach people in economics and statistics and business and psychology courses is how in a statistically valid way do we eliminate the weirdos? How do we eliminate the outliers? 
so that we can find the line of best fit, which is fantastic if I'm trying to find out how many Advil the average person should be taking, too. But if I'm interested in potential, if I'm interested in your potential or for happiness or productivity or energy or creativity, what we're doing is we're creating the cult of the average with science. If I ask a question like, how fast can a child learn how to read in a classroom? Scientists change the answer to, how fast does the average child learn how to read in that classroom? And then we tailor the class right towards the average. Now, if you fall below the average on this curve, then psychologists get thrilled. Because that means you're either depressed, or you have a disorder, or hopefully both. (laughs) We're hoping for both, because our business model is if you come into a therapy session with one problem, we want to make sure you leave knowing you have ten. So you'll keep coming back over and over again. We'll go back into your childhood if necessary, but eventually what we want to do is to make you normal again. But normal is merely average. And what I posit, and what positive psychology posits, is that if we study what is merely average, we will remain merely average. Then instead of deleting those positive outliers, what I intentionally do is come into a population like this one and says, why? Why is it that some of you are so high above the curve in terms of your intellectual ability, athletic ability, musical ability, creativity, energy levels, your resiliency in the face of challenge, your sense of humor? Whatever it is, instead of deleting you, what I want to do is study you. Because maybe we can glean information, not just how to move people up to the average, but how we can move the entire average up at our companies and schools worldwide. The reason this graph is important to me is when I turn on the news, it seems like the majority of the information is not positive. In fact, it's negative. Most of it's about murder, corruption, diseases, natural disasters. And very quickly, my brain starts to think that's the accurate ratio of negative to positive in the world. What that's doing is creating something called the medical school syndrome, which if you know people who have been to medical school during the first year of medical training, as you read through a list of all the symptoms and diseases that could happen, suddenly you realize you have all of them. I have a brother-in-law named Bobo, which is a whole other story. Bobo (laughs) married Amy the Unicorn. Bobo called me on the phone from Yale Medical School. From Yale Medical School, and Bobo said, Sean, I have leprosy. Which even at Yale is extraordinarily rare. But I had no idea how to console poor Bobo because he had just gotten over an entire week of menopause. See, what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but the lens through which your brain views the world that shapes your reality. And if we can change the lens, not only can we change your happiness, we can change every single educational and business outcome at the same time. When I applied to Harvard, I applied on a dare. I didn't expect to get in, and my family had no money for college. When I got a military scholarship two weeks later that allowed me to go, suddenly something that wasn't even a possibility became a reality. When I went there, I assumed everyone else would see it as a privilege as well, that they'd be excited to be there. Even if you're in a classroom full of people smarter than you, you'd be happy just to be in that classroom, which is what I felt. But what I found there is while some people experienced that, when I graduated after my four years and then spent the next eight years living in the dorms with the students, Harvard asked me to. Uh, I wasn't that guy. But what happened... I was an officer of Harvard to counsel students through the difficult four years. And what I found in my research, my teaching, is that these students, no matter how happy they were with their original success of getting into the school, two weeks later, their brains were focused not on the privilege of being there, nor on their philosophy or their physics. Their brain was focused on the competition, the workload, the hassles, the stresses, the complaints. When I first went in there, I walked into the freshman dining hall, which is where my friends from Waco, Texas, which is where I grew up, I know some of you have heard of it, um, when, I, when they come to visit me, they look around, they say, this freshman dining hall looks like something out of Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, which it does, this is Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, and that's Harvard. And when they see this, they say, Sean, why do you waste your time studying happiness at Harvard? Seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? Embedded within that question is the key to understanding the science of happiness. Because what that question assumes is that our external world is predictive of our happiness levels. When in reality, if I know everything about your external world, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world, but by the way your brain processes the world. 
And if we change it, if we change our formula for happiness and success, what we can do is change the way that we can then affect reality. What we found is that only 25% of job successes are predicted by IQ. 75% of job successes are predicted by your optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of as a threat. I talked to a boarding school up in New England, probably the most prestigious boarding school, and they said, we already know that. So every year, instead of just teaching our students, we also have a wellness week, and we're so excited. Monday night, we have the world's leading expert coming in to speak about adolescent depression. Tuesday night is school violence and bullying. Wednesday night... Wednesday night is eating disorders. Thursday night is illicit drug use. And Friday night, we're trying to decide between risky sex or happiness. I said that's most people's Friday nights. <laughs> Which I'm glad you liked, but they did not like that at all. Silence on the phone. And into the silence, I said, I'd be happy to speak at your school, but just so you know, that's not a wellness week. That's a sickness week. What you've done is you've outlined all the negative things that can happen, but not talked about the positive. The absence of disease is not health. Here's how we get to health. We need to reverse the formula for happiness and success. In the past three years, I've traveled to 45 different countries, working with schools and companies in the midst of an economic downturn. And what I found is that most companies and schools follow a formula for success, which is this. If I work harder, I'll be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. That undergirds most of our parenting styles, our managing styles, the way that we motivate our behavior. And the problem is it's scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. First, every time your brain has a success, you just change the goalpost of what success looked like. You got good grades, now you have to get better grades. You got into a good school, now you have to get a better school. You got a good job, now you have to get a better job. You hit your sales target, we're going to change your sales target. And if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. What we've done is we've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society. And that's because we think we have to be successful, then we'll be happier. But the real problem is our brains work in the opposite order. If you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain experiences what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than it does at negative, neutral, or stressed. Your intelligence rises, your creativity rises, your energy levels rise. In fact, what we found is that every single business outcome improves. Your brain at positive is 31% more productive than it. your brain at negative, neutral, or stressed. You're 37% better at sales. Doctors are 19% faster, more accurate at coming up with the correct diagnosis when positive instead of negative, neutral, or stressed, which means we can reverse the formula. If we can find a way of becoming positive in the present, then our brains work even more successfully as we're able to work harder, faster, and more intelligently. What we need to be able to do is to reverse this formula so we can start to see what our brains are actually capable of. Because dopamine, which floods into your system when you're positive, has two functions. Not only does it make you happier, it turns on all the learning centers in your brain, allowing you to adapt to the world in a different way. We found that there are ways you can train your brain to be able to come more positive. In just a two-minute span of time, done for 21 days in a row, we can actually rewire your brain, allowing your brain to actually work more optimistically and more successfully. We've done these things in research now in every single company that I've worked with, getting them to write down three new things that they're grateful for for 21 days in a row, three new things each day. And at the end of it, their brain starts to retain a pattern of scanning the world, not for the negative, but for the positive first. Journaling about one positive experience you've had over the past 24 hours allows your brain to relive it. Exercise teaches your brain that your behavior matters. We find that meditation allows your brain to get over the cultural ADHD that we've been creating by trying to do multiple tasks at once. and allows our brains to focus on the task at hand. And finally, 
random acts of kindness or conscious acts of kindness. We get people when they open up their inbox to write one positive email, praising or thanking somebody in their social support network. And by doing these activities and by training your brain, just like we train our bodies, what we found is we could reverse the formula for happiness and success. And in doing so, not only create ripples of positivity, but create a real revolution. Wake up. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. I'm going to do what I think is a big favor for you in this podcast, and you can thank me later. I'm going to introduce you to Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. I'm going to abandon journalistic detachment for just a moment to say that this is the most stimulating work of nonfiction I have read in years. Sapiens was published in Hebrew in 2011. It's been translated into 26 languages, and now it's out in English. It's a bestseller in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Harari is a historian at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but he doesn't fit into the usual academic boxes. The very idea of writing a history of the species is itself an audacious and even grandiose notion, especially when the author is still in his 30s. The genius of this book is in the questions it asks. Two very important things is that this book uh, tries to give the entire picture of history, from the very beginning up until the 21st century and actually going even into the future, trying to uh, see what are the possibilities ahead of us. And in doing so, the book combines insights from biology with insights from history and from the humanities. My basic understanding is that you can't really do history without biology, but biology isn't enough. It's just the basis. And uh, so you have to combine the two. And secondly, it was very important for me to try and understand not only uh, what happened in history, but also its deeper meaning, especially in terms of the lives of individuals. So throughout the book, one of the main questions was not only what happened, but did it make people more miserable, happier? How did it influence the daily life of the average individual? Which is uh, something that comes through enormously in the book, people have written about evolution, progress, the basics of human history for a long time, but you seem to ask questions like, was the agricultural revolution good or bad for us as a species? Is progress good? You ask these questions in a way that is strikingly new. Yes, I I think what is really new is the attempt to ask questions about happiness and suffering. 
usually when we describe history, we focus on questions of power. Uh, how our species gained power, how particular kingdoms and empires and collectives gained power, and how particular individuals like Genghis Khan or Hitler gained power. So most of history, in, in, in most history books, revolves around questions of power. And power is, of course, very important, but there is another side to the story, and this is the side of happiness and suffering. And for me, the basic question is, how does power get translated into happiness or suffering? Humankind has an amazing ability to acquire power, but we seem to be much less capable when it comes to translating power into happiness. And again and again, you see throughout history this phenomenon that humankind is becoming far more powerful than before, but people are not becoming happier and the world is not becoming a better place. And this for me was the, 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 maybe the most interesting and most important thing about history is to understand this relation, this complex relation between power and happiness. Why is it this vicious cycle of progress versus happiness? Well, there are three main mechanisms that uh, scholars have identified. First of all, happiness does not really depend on objective conditions. Happiness depends far more on expectations. We are happy not when things are good, but when our expectations are fulfilled. And the problem with progress is that when conditions improve, expectations also increase. Uh, there is, for instance, the example of the Arab Spring and the revolution in Egypt in 2011. Mubarak resigns. Tahrir Square responds. About an hour after the news is announced across the square, that wall of sound is still there, barely diminished. If you think in objective terms about the living conditions of the average Egyptian, things were never so good as under Husni Mubarak. Nevertheless, as we all know, Egyptians were not terribly happy with the Mubarak regime. They made a revolution and toppled him, and now they are probably disappointed with the results of that as well. A second mechanism is on the biological level. What really determines human happiness or misery is not events in the outside world, but it is the uh, condition of our biochemical system within our body. We still have the, basically the same biochemistry as in the Middle Ages or in the ancient world. And because what determines our happiness or misery is the biochemistry, not the economy, not politics, so things haven't really changed despite all the enormous historical and technological progress uh, of humankind. And the third major explanation, perhaps the deepest explanation, is that the most basic reaction of the human mind to pleasure and to achievement is not satisfaction, but rather it is craving for more. Even when people experience something very pleasant, even when they have some big achievement, 
the reaction is not to be satisfied, but to be afraid that they will lose what they have, or to crave to have even more. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo, wearing a $2,000 suit and a $40,000 gold f***ing watch. And because this is the most basic pattern of the human mind, no matter what humans have achieved throughout history, they are never satisfied, they simply crave for more. And this is what has been pushing history forward in the economic, in the technological field, in the political field. This is why we have acquired so much power, but we haven't become more satisfied than we were thousands of years ago. Harari readily admits that trying to answer questions about how happy or content humans were in the distant past is speculative. But he says there are some good clues and scientific foundations. A good example of that comes from the agricultural revolution that occurred about 12,000 years ago. When it comes to the agricultural revolution, we have quite a lot of evidence uh, which is relevant to these issues of, of happiness and suffering. For instance, we know, and, and this, is, this we know from a lot of archaeological and anthropological evidence, that uh, people suffered far more from disease after the agricultural revolution than before, because most infectious diseases that plague humankind actually come from domesticated animals, like cattle and sheep and pigs, even today. More than 700 people have now died of swine flu across India since January. Most of them... The bird flu has struck a second egg farm in Iowa. About 5.3 million laying hens will be destroyed after tests confirmed the outbreak. The USDA Almost every year, we hear about an epidemic of avian flu coming from domesticated chickens or an epidemic of swine flu coming from domesticated pigs. Uh, prior to the agricultural revolution, hunter-gatherers subsisted by eating dozens of different species of animals and plants and mushrooms and berries and nuts and so forth. So they got a very rich and balanced diet with all the nutrients and minerals and vitamins they needed. In contrast, most peasants, uh, for much of history, subsisted on a single staple crop like wheat in the Middle East or potatoes in South America or rice in East Asia, their diet was much poor, far less balanced, with far fewer minerals and vitamins and, and so forth. So they had a, a worse diet. And in addition to all these problems, they suffered far more from social hierarchies and social exploitation. In small hunter-gatherer tribes, there was very little uh, room for social hierarchies and exploitation. But once you have the agricultural revolution, you witness the rise of cities and kingdoms and empires and very big gaps between a very small elite that monopolizes most of the wealth and the vast majority of the population. If we adopt the viewpoint of a Chinese peasant in the Middle Ages, or even of uh, working-class people today in the world, suddenly the agricultural revolution seems like a far worse idea. There are hundreds of millions of people today in the world 
that live much harder lives than their ancestors tens of thousands of years ago. Just when you thought, you thought you're not able to call, to call, I'm here to tell ya, to tell ya, you're our only hope. Cause if they say it's good. But it feels bad Then you probably start in a house On your own path Revolutions in history have overthrown systems that people couldn't stand anymore. Slavery was overthrown. Here in the United States we had a civil war which was the form of the revolution which overthrew slavery, made slavery illegal as it is now written uh, in that amendment of our Constitution. Feudalism, the system that existed for a thousand years or more in Europe with lords and serfs, that was overthrown by a revolution, one we celebrate called the French Revolution of 1789. And finally, capitalism faced a revolution in 1917 in Russia, in 1949 in China, and so on. A revolution in which people calling themselves socialists said we can't stand capitalism anymore and we're building another system. In the case of slavery, feudalism and capitalism, passions were raised. These revolutions were thought to usher in by their leaders and by their followers a realm of freedom, of democracy, of human liberation. And in the name of those things, those revolutions were carried out. People rallied to that cause, hoping for that liberation and freedom. But it didn't come. Sure, did people get a better life? Absolutely. Slaves were freed. Serfs were freed. And in the revolutions against capitalism, people's Education and medical care and housing were provided as a matter of right, something which still doesn't exist where private capitalism is dominant. So advances were made, make no mistake. But the promises, the hopes of human liberation and freedom were not realized. And that has made large numbers of people skeptical about the pro very idea of revolution made people imagine that human liberation was an unachievable goal, something you dream about but do not mistake for an achievable reality. And I would like to talk to you about that in our remaining time. What happened in the revolutions against slavery, feudalism, and capitalism? Let's take a look. When the slaves were freed, the relationship master and slave was destroyed. In the United States Civil War, it was made illegal. Abraham Lincoln liberated the slaves. And there will be no more slavery in the United States. 
etc., etc. This was spectacular. This was a real freedom. This was an advance in human history. Slavery has been basically outlawed with some notable exceptions ever since. But was the slave liberated? Here's the irony. Yes, but also no. Weren't a slave anymore? Yes. But no, you weren't liberated because in many cases, for example, here in the United States, the slave, no longer a slave, now free, looked around and discovered that he or she, in order to live, had to become somebody's employee, had to get a job. And in the relationship of employee to employer, these folks, these ex-slaves, discovered that human liberation and freedom were not available. They had to do what in their new position as an employee? They had to come to work five days a week. They had to pour their brains and muscles into a job. And the employer paid them less than the value of what those workers produced. Because the difference between what the employer paid the worker and what the worker produced, we call that value added by the worker through his or her labor, what the worker produced was worth more than what the employer paid the worker, which is how the capitalist system works. The employer is in it for the profit, which honest employers will tell you. They know they're getting more from those workers than they pay for because that's where the profit comes from. So the slaves discovered that they were now in a capitalist system and that while that was an advance, it wasn't the liberation that they had imagined. Same thing for the feudal serf, tied to the land, subject to the landlord, from 500 A.D. to at least 1600, 1700 in Europe, feudalism is the dominant system. And eventually, the serfs rise up. They can't stand it. Took them a thousand years in Europe. And in 1789, in the French Revolution, what were the slogans? Liberty, equality, fraternity. Liberté, égalité, fraternité in French. That's what those peasants wanted. Not just better food and shelter, that for sure, but also liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Well, they got the revolution. They overthrew feudalism. No more serfs tied to the land. People were free. No more landlord dictating what happened all the time. But they also got capitalism. And they discovered, the ex-serfs, that they were now employees and subject to the same lack of liberation that they had hoped for that I spoke earlier about in terms of the slaves. They were stuck in a capitalist system. Well, now let's finish the story. In 1917, the Soviet Union is born in a revolution against capitalism, the system of employers and employees, they thought. 
And they too spoke about freedom, equality, liberty, brotherhood, all of that. Again, like the revolutions against slavery, like the revolutions against feudalism. And what did they achieve? An advance for the Russian people? Of course there was an advance. In 1917, Russia was one of the poorest, most backward countries in Europe. Fifty years later, after this revolution had settled in, the Soviet Union was the world's second superpower after only the United States. They had become a modern, powerful, industrial country. Their revolution had achieved a lot. But did it achieve liberty, equality, fraternity, and all of that? Unquestionably not. So unquestionably not that in 1989, the Russian people had had enough of this and went back to private capitalism. Well, what had happened was in the Soviet Union, and this is similar to what happened in other parts of what we used to call the actually existing uh, socialist world. You had gotten rid of the private employer, but you had substituted the government employer. Instead of a board of directors of your company elected by the shareholders, you had a board of directors, whatever the name, selected by the governing communist party or the government. You had a state official taking your product after you produced it, rather than a private person. For most people in actually existing socialist countries, they still went to work nine to five, five days a week, and produced more than they got in the way of wages and salaries. So they were in a state capitalist system, rather than a private capitalist system. But free of capitalism, they hadn't become. Now, is the lesson here that you... Is the lesson we want to learn that you can't have a revolution that achieves liberty, equality, and brotherhood? Not at all. The lesson here is that the great revolutions of the past against slavery, against feudalism, and against capitalism all made advances for the human community, but they all also missed something. And they all missed the same thing. And the important lesson for those thinking about revolution in the world today is to make sure they don't miss the lesson of the past, that revolution is possible, that revolution makes gains, but also that the gains made by the past revolutions missed something that can't afford to be missed again. What is it? In a nutshell, here it is. If you want to make a serious run at liberty, equality, and brotherhood, you have to organize the production process so that those values are in it. And that means you can't have some people producing more than they get back while other people get that extra without participating in producing it. The problem of slavery is that the slave produces a lot, the master gives the slave back relatively little and keeps the rest for himself and to keep his system going. The problem with feudalism was that the serf produced more than he got to keep and that extra was given to the Lord for his lifestyle. 
And the problem of capitalism is that when you go to work, you produce more than you get in a wage or salary. And that extra is the profit of the businesses, which they use to maintain their lifestyle, build their power, control the government, and so on. If you want that to change, you've got to change the organization of production. And the way to do that is to democratize it. To say that all production will be organized so that the workers who together produce it together decide what is done with the surplus or the profits they produce. Not some people get the profits while other people produce them. Not some people become wildly rich while everybody else is struggling to make ends meet. The minute you do that, you block the revolution from achieving the liberty, equality, and fraternity that was hoped for. This is not an impossible dream. Let me conclude by showing you why. In feudalism that lasted for a thousand years in Europe, Slowly, some manors, that's what they were called, where lords lived and serfs produced for them, some manors discovered over time small businesses arising. Serfs who ran away to a town would set up a little business. And they would arrange with other serfs who came later, hey, I have an idea, you work for me, I'll give you some money, and what you produce is mine. To make a long story short, inside of feudalism, little bits of capitalism began to grow. It was partly the breakdown of feudalism that enabled capitalist enterprises to get going, and eventually they got big, and eventually they contested and overthrew feudalism. In modern capitalism, worker co-ops, places where workers democratize the enterprise, they reject shareholders. They reject a board of directors of other people. They run the business themselves democratically. That's also developing all over the world, not just in Mondragon, Spain, not just in, in a, a collective of little businesses here or there. You know from this program I talk about it a lot. Those worker co-ops are the beginnings of a mass change, just like the little capitalist enterprises that grew up in the middle of feudal Europe were the beginning of what eventually blew up in the French Revolution as the end of feudalism. Think about it. Change is happening. It's a question of recognizing it, understanding it, and developing where it can go. Revolution has been a dream of human beings for thousands of years. Something that survives in the consciousness of desire of human beings is a very profound reality. Making it real is the agenda of the human race. Just like working out of slavery, working out of feudalism, and working out of capitalism has been. You say you got a real solution, well.
reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe not angry, but possibly intrigued, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Next System Project, the National Launch Webinar. So it's become increasingly clear that the capitalist bootstrap American dream mythology basis of the way we live and interact with each other simply isn't sustainable. But a few minutes thinking about how to reverse the ship or even rebuild the ship from scratch is pretty overwhelming. Luckily, the folks at the Next System Project are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and they're inviting you to join in as they imagine and design a better, more sustainable way of life. A project of the Democracy Collaborative, they describe their undertaking this way, quote, The Next System Project is an ambitious, multi-year initiative aimed at thinking boldly about what is required to deal with the systemic challenges the United States faces now and in coming decades, unquote. You can register for the introductory interactive national launch webinar on Wednesday, May 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern, moderated by Grit TV's Laura Flanders, who we actually heard on today's episode. Katie and I will be watching and live tweeting through the Best of the Left Twitter feed using the What's Next hashtag. If you're watching, you'll be able to talk with us, everyone else watching, and the panelists of the webinar themselves through that hashtag. So I hope we'll see you there and engaged. Get registered to watch for free at launch.thenextsystem.org and mark your calendars. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If working toward a new economic system that works with nature instead of against it and for shared prosperity and happiness for all instead of only for a rich few matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about the next system project launch via social media so that others in your network can participate too. Hey, Jay, it's Ryan from Phoenix. I'm sure you're getting a lot of voicemails about your Baltimore Uprising show. It was one of the best produced that you've ever made. I really like uh, how you piece those together. It left me with two big themes that I think are very important and that I just want to reiterate in case people didn't hear what I heard. One is that the narrative that helps to define the civil rights movement as it exists today is lacking a, a robust lexicon, one that is representative of people today and representative of the context today. And so I think that's something that I hope people will keep an eye out for because unfortunately the dog whistle racism, the thug term, that is becoming the go-to language that seems to be resonating with people of my social network, unfortunately. And so as much as I try to oppose the, that lexicon. It is a powerful and easily digestible narrative that explains today. So I hope that the other side, the side that uh, captures the injustice of today, can help continue to ferment and distill and become something that is more powerful and leaves a legacy that can explain the injustice of today better than what we're doing at, in our own time, uh, at least for the historic uh, purposes. And with regard to history and um, the second theme 
that I heard was this battle over Dr. King's legacy. And I couldn't help but hear the narrative that was presented through the movie Selma uh, come through through a lot of what uh, the podcast hosts had to say. And, you know, as great of a movie as Selma was, it is just one narrative. It is a limited scope of Dr. King's legacy that seemed, at least through the podcast that was produced, to uh, have, a, have significantly moved uh, people in their understanding of the civil rights movement of Dr. King's era. And um, I, I think that characterizing the of what we know of Dr. King's uh, legacy as a disnified version of who Dr. King was is a little, uh, little too cynical. Uh, a little uh, doesn't take a very approach with much humility from their perspective. I would just caution them to, unless you really have a, a PhD dissertation level understanding of Dr. King's legacy, you probably have a disnified character version of Dr. King's legacy of your own understanding. And everybody uh, does, unless, of course, they have a PhD in the civil rights movement and the history of that. And so, I mean, as a person who's taught a portion of history so in college, I know that from experience of trying to piece together lessons of history, that all you can get to in a brief presentation, or such as a movie or a book, is a single narrative that omits uh, a lot, uh, a lot of the lived experience and a lot of the, the, the true legacy of, of any movement or any cause. So I would just caution that everybody has a characterized understanding of Dr. King. And to for the Selma narrative to be so dominant in, in what I'm hearing is, uh, is a little saddening because it's what it doesn't speak to is the more is, is rather than the fear of the white recognition of the 1960s what about the intellectual recognition of the honesty and how that resonated with with white people the the, the truth behind nonviolent recognition and getting to the bottom of injustice through just means and when we have uprisings and violence or destruction of property, there's an injustice that comes through that can water down the message of today's civil rights movement. And it shouldn't just be easily accepted that Dr. King would, uh, this is a complimentary piece to Dr. King's nonviolent resolution. And I think that we need to think long and hard uh, about that element of today's movement. With that, Jay, keep up the best work. Uh, we'll continue listening. Thank you. Hey, Jay. This is Isaiah Holly Siegel uh, from New York City. I just wanted to say that I really loved your episode, The Exemplified Fatality. Uh, I wanted to say, especially the one you just did on Friday, was really great. And I wanted to say, and I wanted to thank you for how you. Uh, amplified the voices of people of color. I thought that was a really great way of being a good ally. Because allies, both of us being allies, we need to amplify the voices of people of color, especially in this way. And you did it in a very respectful and great tone. Uh, really great episode, Jay. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the great work. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Diane from Houston. I hear a lot of things, so if 
I actually heard this on my, on your show, just feel free to ignore it. But one of the things that I've heard in terms of the uprising in Baltimore and in terms of the Martin Luther King quotes and how frequently white people in the media are using it out of context is that one of the aspects of the civil rights movement and why the nonviolent parts of it were effective was that the images that came out of it of these people being nonviolent and being beaten and being nonviolent and being killed and being nonviolent and being abused shocked the conscience of the nation. It outraged people when they saw that happening and it moved people. And the contrast between that and now is we now see images of nonviolent people being beaten and abused and killed and we don't care. There is no shock and outrage coming from the media and coming from the general population. And so those tactics of nonviolence don't work when your passivity is assumed rather than being seen as heroic restraint in the face of unbelievable provocation. And that's one of the primary differences in the tactics between then and now, is that white America is fundamentally hugely more callous in a lot of ways to the suffering of everyone else around us. And that is a big difference between what happened in the 60s and what's happening now. Um, like I said, you might have actually been the one that I heard say that. I've been on so many different outlets lately that I don't remember where I heard it. But if it wasn't, it was a really good point, and I hope you guys can add it to yours. All right, thanks very much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And please do keep the voicemails coming in on whatever recent topic you would like to address. Baltimore, Bruce Jenner. Or today's episode on sort of culture and capitalism and the clash therein. Uh, this topic in particular, I, I'm especially interested in. If uh, if you want to hear how today's episode came into being and was sort of inspired into being, uh, if you're a member, then check out the couple you know couple of recent member bonus episodes. And you know, of course, if you're not a member yet, you could become one and then hear those because. There is sort of a, an evolution of thought that led to the conclusion that this episode need to be made. And in the next bonus episode I'm going to put out, I'm going to talk more in depth on this subject. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot on this subject in, in particular, and we'll see what comes of all that. But uh, if you want to sort of get in on that conversation, uh, I'm going to be doing it on the members show. But if you just have thoughts, responses, ideas, uh, please share those. Also, I would love to have the conversation happen in the voicemail section here as well. So the number again, 202-999-3991. And 
I will also say again that I hope you show up to the next system project webinar. That's next Wednesday, uh, May 20th in the afternoon. All the details are in the show notes of this episode, or you can just go to launch.thenextsystem.org. And, you know, like I said, I, you know, I will be there. Katie will be there watching and we'll be uh, engaging on social media during that. And yeah, as I said, I've been thinking a lot about this subject recently. So, uh, I'm just, I'm trying to sponge up as much information on it as I can. So I'm, I'm certainly interested in it and I hope you are too. And finally, a quick update on my climate hike fundraising. A reminder that my girlfriend Amanda and I are going to Glacier National Park. We are hiking dozens and dozens of miles over the course of several days. It's a show of, you know, physical exertion to, to show our commitment to the cause. And in return, we hope to raise lots and lots of money to donate to uh, excellent climate change fighting organizations. So the donations are still coming in thanks to another anonymous donation, Justin, Janelle, Peter, and Stephen, who have all uh, chimed in with their contributions over the last couple of days. At this pace, we're not going to come anywhere near the fundraising goal by the gold date of the end of May, but I am still not worried because that's not how fundraisers work. It's not just a nice, even, steady pace to the end. Uh, everyone uh, is lazy and waits till the last minute and then realizes they're almost out of time, and then they rush in to save the day. So I'm still not panicked, but just keep in mind it shouldn't be a goal of yours to be, you know, the last donation to put us over the goal. We, we still need everyone uh, kind of helping to build momentum as we go and, and let that snowball get larger and larger, inspiring more people to donate. So if you would, please head over to bestofleft.com and click on the gigantic climate hike banner and donate what you can. All of the money is going to excellent climate organizations, so it's a win-win for everyone involved. Thanks very much to everyone who has donated and is considering donating. It is very, very much appreciated. Now, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad story Wonder what we're missing We can't see past our sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past our sad stories And forget who it is we're fooling